0: On May 2nd of 1989, English rock band The Stone Roses released their self-titled debut album. For a few glorious moments, it looked like The Stone Roses were going to lead another British invasion. Instead, they fell apart. But first, they made an incredible album, highlighted by the ecstatic 8-minute long I Am The Resurrection, that single-handedly launched the 90s pop. Welcome to the 500 Albums Podcast, where we go through the Rolling Stones' top 500 list of greatest albums of all time, as selected by a panel of musicians, critics and journalists and published by the Rolling Stone magazine in 2003. My name is Erwin, and today we're looking at number 497 on the list, The Stone Roses by The Stone Roses. So we're back today with a somewhat more classic studio album, not instrumental, not live, So it's really cool to get back into that kind of stuff. I had heard of this band before. It's a bit more into the genres I like of rock music. And it inspired a lot of artists that I like today. Uh, But I wasn't aware of where they exactly came from and what they had done. I was aware they had quite a short span in the mainstream. But I wasn't sure what happened to them. So it's really interesting to see what their history is and what they have meant for the scene in general. This is gonna be an interesting episode, so I hope you have listened to the album before and we'll look at the artist first. Let's go. So, who is the artist? Well, the Stone Roses were an English rock band from Manchester and were active from the early 80s. The band's most prominent lineup consisted of the vocalist Ian Brown, guitarist John Squire, bassist Manny, and drummer Rennie. The Stone Roses history starts at Grammar School, where Ian Brown and John Squire found each other and formed a band, The Patrol. They did this together with Andy Cousins and Simon Wollstonecraft, and they played some shows and recorded a demo tape, but decided to change the lineup and approach to the band. They then reformed as the Fireside Chaps, and later as the Waterfront, but they disbanded soon after. And at this time, the band played a cross between the classic British sixties guitar pop, like the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, but also a bit more heavy metal and goth rock, or post-punk as we know it. With all their lineup changes, they decided to try it once more, but this time fully dedicating themselves to the performances, and creating new material and they dubbed themselves the stone roses the band rehearsed for a few months and in 1984 they recorded their first demos as this band and they played their first shows in warehouses around manchester while doing this they acquired a very dedicated underground following and they released some singles because of this success a lot of labels were interested in them at this time because of the following they seemed to have But they didn't really take off with these singles, but they played some sold-out gigs across Manchester and London in early 1989. And this is the same year that the band released their debut album, which spawned a whole new musical movement and pushed it into the mainstream. But we'll get more into that later. The group's musical style had evolved from their formative years, and they created their own catchy, neo-psychedelic guitar pop, and they were praised for being a connecting link between the rock and roll and acid house culture that was happening at the time. And later in their career, the band changed their sound and were now involved in the environment of different bands. In their career, the band has released two studio albums, several compilations and live albums, but also a few singles that were not necessarily on albums. And they had been active from the early 80s up until the disbandment in 1996, and they later returned for reunion tours and gigs but never made any more albums after that. Throughout their career, the band had a bit of a problematic relationship with the media. They sometimes reluctantly gave interviews, and when they did, their answers were sometimes reserved, which led to frustration by journalists. And there were some press conferences that the band gave that the journalists weren't very happy about, and I'll tell more about that later on. So The Stone Roses were a part of the larger Manchester musical and cultural scene. And this genre or this cultural scene combined the styles of psychedelic rock and electronic dance music. And this is also surely true for the Stone Roses. Their biggest influences in their career were artists like The Beatles, Rolling Stones, The Birds, Jimi Hendrix and something a bit more closer to home, The Smiths. So as I mentioned before, prior to their debut album the stone roses had released a few singles on different labels and the first single spawned from the band's first attempt at making a studio album which they did in january of 1985. during this time the band was starting to perform headlining shows in england and when the band returned to the studio later in that year they were kind of unhappy with the sound and the songs they had created the recording and production didn't sound good so they decided not to release that album however they still had some commitment, so they decided to release a double single with the songs "So Young" and "Tell Me." The songs displayed the earlier sound of the band with a more punk style that they were later unhappy about. The release wasn't as big of a success, and it mostly went unnoticed outside of Manchester. The band continued to perform and record a few songs, but they never recorded any official albums, and the friction started building within the band, and their lineup changed once again. And the sound of the band also evolved because of this. And in May 1987, the Stone Roses finally released their follow up single. And this one's called Sally Cinnamon. It had a much more recognizable guitar sound and had a very strong melody. And it attracted many new fans, but it also alienated some older fans. The single entered the UK indie chart, but it didn't really launch the band into the mainstream yet. The band continued to perform and record a few songs. The following year, the band were spotted by several record labels. They were offered studio time to record a new single, this time with New Order's Peter Hook, by the label Rough Trade Records. And the band did. But later in the year, the band performed more headline shows, including Manchester's International 2 which was organized to raise funds against the government's plan to censor, quote, the promotion of homosexuality in public materials and teaching, unquote. The band was strictly against that. And so they were spotted there and signed to Silvertone Records instead. And so the label also required the rights to the recording from earlier in the year. And on October of 1988, the third single, Elephant Stone, was released. This time, this song incorporated more of the danceable rhythms and creating this iconic mix of rock and roll and electronic dance music. was happening in the world around this time. Well, the album was released in 1989. This decade in Britain politics-wise was dominated by Margaret Thatcher's government. And her policies were set in place for more privatization and free markets. And meanwhile, the labor movement was undermined and it led to a lot of frustration with the lower class. And this was especially noticeable in the north and the Midlands in England. And this is where a lot of the lower class worked. For example, in coal mines. And because of these new policies, the region experienced economic decline. And it forced citizens to be more creative and activistic. And during the mid-80s, there were a lot of labor strikes. And workers who agreed to work anyways under the new policies... ...were sometimes attacked by picketers. And the police was then forced to harshly act against these protesters. There were little to no options for workers when the coal mines eventually closed altogether. Poverty increased even more, creating a bigger split between the lower class and the higher class. There wasn't really much that people could look out for, so there was a lack of perspective. The youth, however, found soothing in art, music, but also drug use, such as MDMA and ecstasy. And this youth movement spawned the 1988 Second Summer of Love, which was a countrywide social phenomenon in the United Kingdom, which saw a monumental increase of free and unlicensed rave parties, and also, as mentioned before, MDMA used. And this scene was a perfect place for the 80s music in Manchester. It was currently dominated by postponed bands like New Order, The Smiths, and The Fall. And in 1982, the nightclub, The Hacienda was opened by Factory Records and it started as a place for pop-oriented live performances. But by 1986, the venue switched its focus to be much more of a dance club inspired by Ibiza clubs that the founders had gone to before. Because of this, Manchester became the center of alternative pop culture and it set the scene by also hosting American house artists in those nightclubs. Local bands were inspired by this sound and weren't only looking at rock and roll sound, that they had heard before, and it developed some kind of fusion between the post-punk and the house sound, and they started performing this and recording it in the mid '80s. And this whole movement and scene was later coined as Madchester, first used in 1988. And the Stone Roses were a part of this scene, and other notable artists here are Happy Mondays, Inspiral Carpets, James and the more electronic 808 state, named after the drum machine. So now that we know a little bit about the history leading up to the album, let's look at the recording process and what happened during that time. So as the Stone Roses were signed to a new record label, they started recording their debut album over a period between June of 1988 and February of 1989. The recording primarily took place at Battery Studios in London, and some additional recordings took place at Kong Studios, also in London, and the Rockfield Studios in Wales. The album was produced by John Leckie, who had previously worked on albums by Pink Floyd and on the albums of the individual members of The Beatles' solo records. Originally, Peter Hook, who had produced the previous single, was going to produce the whole album. But due to the commitments of his own band, New Order, and the switch of label, they were recommended to work with Leckie instead. And the recording was a good experience for the most part. In a 1996 interview, singer Ian Brown described this as follows: Quote, Pure fun. Proper good times. We were in London, recording at night, We'd all get a taxi back at 7 in the morning and we all shared a house on Kansai Rise. We were skinned. They'd give 10 pounds a day for food, which was a load for us. You're 4 years in the doll, suddenly you're in a country studio with someone cooking for you and a bag of weed in your pocket. Yeah, great. Unquote. In comparison to their previous recordings, the band was actually quite happy with the way that these songs sounded. And Lecky helped with this sound. Even though it sometimes didn't always correspond with what the band was thinking, As Brown also remembers, quote, Manny and Rainey didn't get their thing down as heavy as it was in rehearsals. I think Lecky had listened to the song Waterfall. I thought it sounded like Simon and Garfunkel. So he's turned the bass and drums down. He's gone for that Bird 60s thing. But Manny was the best bass player that I'd heard and I wish that was more audible on the record." Lecky himself had positive memories of recording this album, and he said, quote, They weren't frightened. What you hear is the band. That's the way I work, really. They play, and I record them, and we enhance everything with overdubs and double-tracking, any number of different things. You have to do a degree of arranging, but that's part of the recording process. They didn't seem to feel any pressure other than that they were banned making their first album and didn't want to lose the opportunity to make it good, so there wasn't any pressure to prove themselves, they knew they were good." Unquote. Looking further at the album, the cover art features a Jackson Pollock inspired work done by the guitarist John Squire, and it was named after the song Bye Bye Batman, and both the song and the artwork display the iconic lemons, which is a reference to the May 68 riots and protests that were happening in France at the time. Ian Brown remembers how they got this reference. Quote, When we were in Paris, we met this 65-year-old man who told us that if you stuck a lemon, it cancels out the effect of tear gas. He still thought that the government in France could be overthrown one day. He'd been there, and 68 and everything so we always carried a lemon with him so he could help out at the front 65 what a brilliant attitude unquote and this attitude can of course also be linked to the movement that was happening in england in the 80s As alluded to many times already, the Stone Roses were seen as a band that combined different genres, especially rock and some kind of electronic dance music. Yet, in my opinion, this album doesn't really do it that much justice, with the exception of some parts, of course. And there are definitely elements that are not conventional for the post-punk genre that was dominating the scene at the time. There wasn't just focus on melodies and droning guitars that were typical for that time but there's more attention to rhythm and groove, which I guess is a bit more typical for the dance music, but you can't really hear those electronic sounds as much, which makes it also interesting, of course. The album experiments also a lot with recording techniques, like playing sounds backwards to create a more psychedelic effect, as it was done in the 60s by the Beatles, for example. And it also shows some of the British, maybe tongue-in-cheek arrogance, that is also noticeable for music like the Smiths, It also appropriates a traditional British ballad on one of the tracks. So all in all, it's really a blend of different styles and influences very unique to this band and this album. But to further describe the sound of the album, it's maybe best to look at the actual tracks on the album. Due to the success and hype around the band, there was an abundance of singles released, and I will probably not go over every single one of them, or every single track of this album, but I'd like to highlight some interesting ones. So first of all, let's look at the opening track of the album, I Wanna Be Adored. And here we already see a blend of the British humor and the great rhythm section and melodies. The track opens up with a collection of sounds leading into a bass line, guitars and drums. It creates the perfect amount of excitement before Maybe a more typical sounding vocal. Brown's lyrics are quite simple throughout the song. And they repeat throughout all of it, really. He talks about not having to sell his soul for him wanting to be adored. And some critics took this very seriously. But Brown later explained that this was not to be taken, literally. Quote, I didn't actually want people to adore me. I was trying to say then, if you want to be adored, it's like a sin like lust or gluttony or something like that. Some also interpret the lyrics as an apology to the fans, because the band signed a record deal. And the theological theme that Brown states might also be a recurring theme on this record, as we will see on some different tracks. The song was later edited down to become a single, and it became one of the biggest hits in the United States. The second track I'd like to talk about is She Bangs the Drums. And once again, this song opens up with a killer bassline. This song kicks up the tempo and it feels a lot more hopeful and optimistic compared to the previous track, and it kind of feels like a classic 60s inspired pop song about trying to look for words about someone you love. The lyrics of the songs were co-written by Brown and Squire, with the former writing the verses and the latter the chorus. The song was also released as a single with a slightly different sound, and this seemed to resonate with audiences, as it was the band's first Top 40 hit, launching them into the mainstream consciousness. The following track on the album is Waterfall, and this one was also released as a single and it's probably one of my favorite tracks on the album. And it continues the optimistic sound, and its lyrical contents also reflect this optimism, or some sort of liberty, maybe. Brown said that this song is about a girl who sees all the bullshit around her and she drops the trip and goes to Dover. And as she's about to get on the boat, she feels free. The sound of the song is often compared to The Birds, a band that Squire was a big fan of. Love this chorus. The track ends with a fantastic instrumental part. The following track, Don't Stop, actually takes the riff of Waterfall and reverses it, creating a psychedelic but still somehow melodic and rhythmic instrumental. I'm going to skip ahead now on the album to the track Made of Stone. And this song opens up with a very iconic guitar sound, and leads into a very calm verse, being somewhat reminiscent of some of the Beach Boys songs, I think. Then the iconic chorus kicks in. It's kind of hard not to sing along with it. Many have compared this song to Primal Scream's Velocity Girl. Which was a huge inspiration for John Squire. So it might as well be possible. And the song tells a story about a car crash. Which many people have connected to the painter John Pollock's deadly car accident. Whose artwork is mirrored on the album and the single cover. And this song is also very characteristic. For its live performance that the band did on BBC's The Late Show. Because about a minute into the performance the power cut out and as the band were cursing the presenter tries to link it together to the next item coming up but ian brown has none of it and just starts screaming amateur amateur and it's really cool and you should really check it out so the last track on this release is the eight minute long epic i am the resurrection and this song started out as a joke during sound checks and rehearsals where the bass player Manny would play the Beatles' Taxman riff, but backwards. And the rest of the band would then join in, creating their own song. So the band decided to make it into an actual song, and they put it together in the studio in about three days. And once again, this song has some theological themes. And this time it contemplates how false religion is through the lens of a failing relationship. And the last lines of the songs reference the Bible, but then change the phrase. It reflects Brown's anti-religion sentiment, and was also criticized, of course, by people... The track then ends with a 5 minute long instrumental jam, which is really great, but of course I can't let you hear all of it. Now this was the final track of the initial UK release, but I would be remiss to not mention the closing track of the US release and the later re-releases, namely Fool's Gold, which is an almost 10 minute long dance funk rock song, which really showcased the rhythm section of the band, and this song really is the typical electronic and rock music combination that the band was known for. The lyrics of the songs were inspired by the film The Treasure of the Sierra Madre, a story about greed as a group goes on a journey in a search for gold, no matter the cost on the body or the mind. And Ian Brown has mentioned that the song was originally written over the song Funky Drummer, originally by James Brown, and the bassline was inspired by Young MC's know-how. The lyrics also reference the song These Boots Are Made For Walking and the French revolutionary Marquis de Sade. And this song became the most successful single of this album, reaching the top 10 of the UK singles chart. So how was this record received when it came out? Well, the album was released in May of 1989, and on its initial release, it didn't really get that much attention. Although the scene surrounding the band in Manchester knew what was coming, the overall critics did not seem to care as much. And at the time, the magazine Enemy did review the album positively, giving it a 7 out of 10, but it didn't feature it as its lead review. The weekly magazine Melody Maker, however, did feature it very heavily. This might also be in part because they were really covering the Madchester scene at this point. But Bob Stanley from this magazine described this music as godlike, especially praising Squire's guitars, comparing it to both Jimi Hendrix and Johnny Marr, but also praising his own original writing. Other critics weren't as positive on the release. Uh, they called it overhyped and the production monotone. And it judged that it wasn't really any different from some of the indie bands coming out of the United States. Disregarding these comments though, the band continued touring extensively across the United Kingdom. And they actually performed on some very high-profile gigs. And this included the performance at the nightclub Hacienda in Manchester. And some journalists described this as an iconic performance in the history of the Manchester scene, but also in their career. But their big break really came when they performed the song Fool's Gold at the top of the Pops in November of that year. And they were co-headlining that evening with another Manchester band, Happy Mondays. And this performance led the media to have an increased interest in Manchester's music scene. And record labels picked up on this and they signed new artists left and right. Besides these new bands, the Stone Rose's own popularity and demand grew a lot as well. But this also was coincided with the band self-doubt. And Ian Brown reflected on this time. Quote, Maybe I was worried because it was all getting too much. We were getting things like, these are for Jesus Christ's. And I wanted to keep it real. That was the hardest thing for me. Don't worship me. But it's impossible. If you refuse someone an autograph, they get upset. Unquote. Nonetheless, their manager, Gareth Evans, thought it was a good idea to capitalize on their popularity. And he set up a mega gig at Spike Island in May of 1990. And the day before the event, the band also gave a press conference. But their unresponsiveness led to frustration with a lot of journalists who said they were underappreciating the attention they were getting. And even on the day of the performance, things weren't exactly as planned. Brown recalls this as follows. Quote, the pa wasn't big enough for a start and certain things were going on that we didn't know about the management were taking people's sandwiches off them of the gates to force them to buy five quid burgers when they got in and the basis manny also weighed in on this later saying quote our management really fucked up there were security guards taking booze off people there was a lot of overcharging for food and drink and there weren't enough facilities on site there were a lot of aspects of Spike Island that were really badly thought out. But none of that is the band's job." Unquote. Shortly after this concert, the band released another single, One Love. And this single once again became a great success for the band, peaking in the top five of the UK singles chart. The song was characterized by its guitar sound, but in retrospect, the band was not happy about this song. Quote, the chorus wasn't strong enough we tried for an anthem. We wanted to cover all bases and ended up covering none. The time following this, the band sailed into stormy weather as they become frustrated with their management and label, mostly due to the five year and eight record deal that they had signed. And they paid the band little to no royalties for their debut album. And this led to a very extensive period of legal battles and the firing of their manager, Gareth Evans, Following the suits, the band decided to start touring throughout Europe, kind of abandoning their Manchester scene. And they started recording their follow-up record, Second Coming. And this one was released in December of 1994. And the lead single of this album, Love Spreads, performed very well commercially. But it was critically panned for its departure from the band's original sound, being much more guitar-heavy, kind of reflecting what was happening in the scene at this time. And friction in the band started building up and this led to the drummer, Rennie, leaving just prior of the promotional tour of their second album. And even though he left, the tour was fun for the band, but they were criticized heavily for the sound and Brown's vocals. And the band were meant to perform at Glastonbury in 1995, but guitarist John Squire broke his collarbone in a cycling accident And during their tours squire was also doing a lot of cocaine and it hit a low point when some people close to the band died and squire was not really responding and showing any interest in showing support squire eventually left the band in april of 1996 and after this the band kept performing for a few months but eventually they dissolved in october of 1996. And the individual members follow through with their own careers and had their own success solo or with other bands and for the 10 and 20 year anniversary of the debut the album had been re-released and since then the band has received a lot of positive reviews and ret- retrospectively they have been praised a lot for its important in the mancunian and british and worldwide music scene After hearing not a lot of the band, they decided in 2011 to come back. And they announced a reunion tour spanning 50 gigs across the world. And during this tour, the band performed a lot of major venues and festivals. And a documentary was made about the reunion named The Stone Roses Made of Stone, which was released in 2013. A couple years later in 2016, they played more shows both in Manchester and Scotland, and they released their first singles in 20 years. Those singles are All For One and Beautiful Thing. And a year later, 2017, they continued playing some shows, but at their show in Hampden Park in Glasgow, Brown addressed the crowd and he stated, don't be sad that it's over, be happy that it happened. And this alluded to the end for the band and Squire confirmed in 2019 that the band had broken up once again. So, clearly the band had a big influence on the music scene. The band popularized the music coming out of Manchester and put the city on the map as a place of great music and cultural exploration. And their shows reached the younger generation that became inspired to create their own music. And that's why I'd like to look at some of the bands that were directly inspired by the Stone Roses. So first of all, a well-known Mancunian band that started out in 1990, but didn't really see much success until the later 90s was The Verve. Singer Richard Ashcroft was very much inspired by them, and he mentioned this in an interview with the magazine Enemy. Quote, The Stone Roses blew me away, right from the beginning. People used to hand around bootleg tapes of Roses gigs in Manchester, even before the first record came out. So when it did, Everyone already knew the words. Not many bands these days have that sort of enigma to them. Lyrically, they were striving for something so much bigger than guitar music was at the time. End quote. Another Mancunian band that's probably the most known nowadays and that took heavily influence from the Stone Roses is Oasis. Both Noel and Liam Gallagher had attended Stone's Roses gigs both before and after the release of the debut album. And probably the most important one they attended was the anti-Class 28 show. The Manchester's International 2 against the censorship of homosexuality. Because the story goes that during this gig, Noel met with the Inspiral Carpets and he convinced them to become their guitar tech. And Liam was reportedly so stunned by Brown's performance, he was inspired to start his own band. And eventually, the brothers teamed up, of course, and saw immense success themselves, taking over the crown from the Stone Roses as the representative of Manchester's music. So the Manchester scene, and Stone Roses in general, had an insurmountable impact on the rest of Britain. Because the catchy melodies, and singing in the authentic British accents, and overall positive vibe combined with maybe the more guitar-heavy grunge sound out of the States, created a blueprint for something that we would now refer to as 90s Britpop, just like Oasis. But there were other non-Mancunian bands that were inspired or part of this scene, like Blur, Suede, and Pulp. And with that, we have come to the end of this week's episode. Thanks for listening. Make sure to subscribe and tell maybe your friends about the podcast. You can rate this in any app you like. You can also follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at 500albumspod, which is at 500albumspod. Or you can email me with your favorite tracks of this album, any suggestions for the podcast and anything else. And you can do this via 500albumspod at gmail.com. And next week we'll be looking at the next album, which is number 496, which is Give It Up by Bonnie Raitt. So make sure to listen to that album and I'll see you next week. Bye.